Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Rob Cavallo is one of the world's top-selling and highly acclaimed music producers, selling more than 130 million records worldwide. He's worked with superstar talents, including Eric Clapton, Fleetwood Mac, Josh Groban, Kid Rock, Alanis Morissette, Green Day, and the Dave Matthews Band. He's produced numerous movie soundtracks, including the lead single with Phil Collins for the animated movie Tarzan, which won several awards for Best Original Song and stayed at the top of the charts for 19 weeks. Over the course of his career, Rob's won an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and six Grammy Awards, including Producer of the Year. He's also a successful music executive with an illustrious career working with entertainment giants Disney, Hollywood Records, and Warner Brothers, where he became chairman in 2010. Billboard magazine has ranked him in their Power 100 list of the most influential music industry executives, and he's with us today. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Rob Cavallo. I want to start at the very beginning and know where you were born. Where did you grow up? It's interesting because it, I basically was born into the music business because it was Washington, D.C. My father was going to Georgetown University and he founded the Jazz Club. And he realized very quickly that if he opened the Jazz Club of, Washington, of, of Georgetown University, yeah. he realized that if he opened a nightclub, which, was, which he did, called The Shadows, that he would be able to book really cool uh, artists from Greenwich Village, you know, from New York and from around the world. Because a very cosmopolitan city, and you know, people were coming to, to you know to do governmental work and what have you. Um, so, if he opened a nightclub, he thought he would have an audience. Anyways, the nightclub was immediately successful, and I was actually baptized in that nightclub. <laughs> <Is that> really? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We were Roman Catholic at the time, and so yeah, I was baptized at the nightclub, and the nightclub became famous because a lot of cool people would come and play there. So, you know, here's some of the acts that broke: the Moms and the Papas came out of that club. The Love and Spoonful came out of that club. Uh, Woody Allen and Bill Cosby wow. came out of that club. What was the name of the club? Uh, it was called The Shadows. The Shadows. And it was a cool place because you could – I actually even remember it. You could walk – you had to walk downstairs. It was kind of an underground club. Subterranean. From, from, yeah, subterranean from the, yeah, from the street. It was on M Street, of course, the famous street in Georgetown now that – you know, it's a hip happening street. Mm-hmm. Very it hip always happening. was. Always was. And so, and then he became a manager. Both Mamas and Papas and Love and Spoonful said, "Will you manage us?" And he said, "I think I can only do one." So he did the Love and Spoonful. But he also managed Mama Cass. I think after the Mamas and Papas broke up. So to me, I was always around music and guitar players. John Sebastian Zali Yanovsky, who was the lead guitar player. I actually was given a guitar, which I still have, by Zali from the Love and Spoonful, which is a Guild Thunderbird, which you can see them playing on TV and stuff. I got it for my when I was in first grade. I did a I did a little song in front of my first grade class, and he gave me this guitar, which I still have. But I used to jump on Mama Cass's lap. I thought she was my aunt. She just would come <laughs> over. She was the greatest person you ever met in your life. I mean, the way she was on those talk shows, the way she was in real life, and 
So I was surrounded by music, and my parents would play music. And when records came out, you could imagine. I mean, they were in their mid twenties in this great scene, and they were like, my my dad would like play these Beatles records and play the newest Stones records and everything. So I was like just soaking in the best music from the time I was born. That's amazing! What a way to grow up as a young boy. She was amazing, and yeah, I was I was surrounded by music and love music. And what happened next to me was we moved to California because the Love and Spoonful basically broke up, and then he was looking for his next thing. And he was kind of sponsored by Mo Austin of Warner Brothers Records. So our Warner Brothers Records thing happened like really early. Mo and Evelyn, the, you know, he was the great chairman and CEO of Warner Brothers Records, said, oh, you should come. We live in Encino. Come live in Tarzana. So we moved to Tarzana right next door. <laughs> and, you know, he started managing Earth, Wind & Fire. Well, him and he was managing Ramsey Lewis and Ramsey Lewis was drummer was Maurice White. And Maurice White said to my dad, you know, I have this idea for this Afro jazz band, kind of big sort of Afro jazz band that'll, you know, be something, you know, we're going to take African rhythms and Cuban rhythms and other kinds of rhythms and put it together. And, and it might be something special. And my dad said, you know what, I think you're special. Let's let's do it. And then they put together Earth, Wind and & Fire. And so Earth, Wind and & Fire was the next band that was around me all the time. And then Little Feet, Little George gave me my first guitar lesson, which is kind of an unheard of thing for someone to be that lucky to get a guitar lesson from yeah. one of the <laughs> greatest players of all time. <laughs> no kidding. But I, when I was 11, I found this stack of Beatles records in my dad's closet, basically the ones that he was playing when I was one, two, and three years old. And I put them on and I was like, oh my God, I knew every word. I knew what song was coming next and I couldn't believe it. And I just wanted to jump around the room. This music made me so happy. I couldn't, I just couldn't stand it. And I just had to know, how the fuck did they do that? So I started on a ukulele. I would just try to play and make the ukulele sound like whatever they were sounding like. And then eventually I got this little, I got a, a, this book called The Beatles Complete, which is about an inch thick. And it has every song in it and kind of where to put your fingers, like sort of the block tablature of, of like, you know, here's how you make a D chord or a G or whatever. Half the songs were in the wrong key, but some of them were in the right key. <laughs> <laughs> and I would tune my guitar to the freaking record and I would sit there for like 10 hours a day. And then I learned and I took it really kind of almost obsessively far because then I got a little drum set and then I got a piano and I started to learn how to play every song of the Beatles on the guitar the way they did all the different guitar parts, the bass parts, the drum parts, the piano parts, deconstructed the whole thing, then did it to the Stones, then did it to the Who, then would do it to Stevie Wonder and then would try to do it to Earth, Wind & Fire because they're, they're really hard to play. And then literally I started to do it to every pop song from 1955 or 52 till at that point I was, I was, it was like 1976 or something. And you had an ear then. I mean, obviously you were able to decode. I was, it was a weird thing because I was, I was self-taught. There was one kid who lived up the street who was like, when I was in uh, seventh grade, he was in 11th or something and he had knowledge. <laughs> so he would come down and go, well, you kind of do it like this, or, you know, here's how's this trick. And I started to basically put, I had this like, sort of like, I call it like a musical bag of tricks where it would be like, well, here's what you can do on a guitar, or here's how you play a harmonic. You know, it's like one of the first tricks you learn on a guitar is you can put your finger on the 12th fret really lightly and then hit the note and it'll make kind of a bell sound. And then you can do it on the fifth fret and the seventh fret. And then you start, what you know, later when you go to school, you start to realize, oh, those are the harmonics and they're a certain ratio of the length of the string that gives you the, the, you, know, the you know, the first, you know, the tonic or the fifth or the, or the third. It's unbelievable. You put together all this stuff. I did end up going to, um, to USC, but I, I didn't, it was only classical music. But I had played in all these bands. I, when I was 14, I got my first band and I played all the clubs in L.A. And the, you know what it looked like was it was like amazing. it was like Almost Famous. You know that movie Almost Famous yeah, where you see them and, they, and he goes to the house. Remember yeah. the lead singer yeah. goes to the house and there were house parties. That was exactly how I grew up. It looked exactly like that. And I used to take 
I had a bass amp and I had a guitar and a bass. And I would, there was this thing called the Valley Green Sheet. And I would answer, like, it'd say bassist needed or guitarist needed. And I would show up in my mom's car and these older kids would, you know, I, when I would get to the house, they'd be <laughs> drunk and stoned. And I swear to God, every time I got out of the car, they would look at me like, we're going to steal your shit. <laughs> <laughs> Kid, there's no way you're leaving leaving here with that high lot 100 half stack and the, and and your you know your Rickenbacker 4001. And then I could see that on their face. And then I would be like, oh, but let's just let's just play something. Let's just play one song. You know, I was like, what are you guys playing? Because I had this kind of strange encyclopedic knowledge of every song that was on the radio up until that point. And they said, you know, if they said something like, well, we want to play this uh, heavy metal song by UFO from Canada, and I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, which one? <laughs> Or we're going to play 2112 from Rush. From Rush, And I'm like, we want to play a whole thing? <laughs> you know, it's an 11 minute song. And then um, wow. whatever it was, I would just, they would be like, this kid can play, you know, and then, hey, or have a beer. And then the next thing you know, I was, I was in the band. I love that. Are you an only child? Uh, I have a younger sister. Is she like you too? Musical? You know what she is? She's got a great ear, but she didn't, she didn't go after it. She didn't like. She wasn't like She that. didn't go after, yeah, like becoming a player. So did you have why. a dream of being a performer? Oh, man, that's a good story. It's, I'm glad you asked because – so I'm in all these bands and I'm now 18 years old and we're going to play, I think, the Whiskey on a Friday night or something, which is kind of a coveted gig. Mm-hmm. And what band was this? I think it was called uh, Clockwork or something. We were kind of a progressive band. We had like two drummers and we were kind of taking after Emerson, Lake and Palmer and uh, and Genesis and stuff like that. And I remember the band was like really, really excited to play. And I caught myself in the mirror right before we were about to go on stage. And I was and I just saw myself and I was like, I realized right then, wow, you're you're not a performer. Like I didn't have that itch. Like I felt inside instead of being where everyone else was excited to get up on stage and shake your ass and fucking, you know, make faces at the crowd and, you know, do some trick on the guitar or whatever. I was like, oh, you don't you don't like that. You're not cut out for that. You were yearning for it. No, I didn't have it. It wasn't that I didn't. I just didn't love it. It wasn't. I liked it. It was okay, but right. it wasn't what I loved. What I really loved was doing all these arrangements. Like I loved setting the guitar sounds and tuning. getting tuning. Yeah, mm-hmm. like getting all the stuff and then taking a melody. Like if you give me a melody and a lyric, like I will try. I will harmonize it and put the right rhythm on it. Like I'll find an arrangement for it. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. Really like to do. So I had a. I had a studio at the house. I. I had a little an A track an A thirty three forty S, which is mm-hmm. a four track TIAC thing. And, uh, and what I used to do like for friends would be like, I would say, remember back in the days of, uh, answering machines. So, you know, I would say like, what's your favorite song? And the kid would say, uh, Oh, I really like that song, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles. And I'd say, okay, what's your phone number? And then, so, then I go, I wish I had a guitar, but I would play, <laughs> Leave your name, surrender to the tone. This is three, four, five, four, five, oh, two. You know, and it would be like, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> and it, you would hear bass drums and the whole thing, like, and produce new, and it. beep. You know? <laughs> that's amazing. That's so cool. So it was it just made like, you very popular like, too, didn't it? Everybody wanted to have one of those. Oh, yeah. I would just make, and I just would remake songs. That actually brings me to a story that's that's kind of funny because I think at this point I was about 15 or 16 and my dad was managing Prince and I was doing my trick of remaking songs. So there was this one song of Prince that I, Prince's that I just loved called When You Were Mine. And there was something about me that was kind of like, I was a bit of a juvenile delinquent. I, had, I got good grades in school, but I was punk rocker. I was rebellious. I, I got expelled from school when I was in 12th grade. It's a whole other story. So I took When You Were Mine and I I made basically 
like a super punk rock version of it. I made a version that was probably, you know, 20 BPM faster and definitely in, more insane sounding. And I'm playing the bass and the drums and the guitars. And back then, the best place to really listen to a cassette loud was in my dad's car because he had this pumped up Porsche. So I went down, popped this cassette in. My buddies who live down the street show up and they go, let's play basketball. So I pop the cassette out and we, we go play basketball. And I forget that the, the cassette is in there. Well, my dad goes to LAX the next day and picks up Prince. And... <laughs> <laughs> and Prince gets in the car <laughs> and he goes, Hey Bob, my dad's name is, Hey Bob, what are you listening to? And he pushes the cassette in and on comes, you know, and it was just insane sounding. And my dad's, he goes, Oh no. And he's, he looks over and he sees Prince and Prince is just, it's got this scowl on his face. He's just, he looks really angry. And my dad's driving and he's like, Oh God. And he didn't know what to do. And Prince listened to the whole song and he pops the cassette out and he goes, Bob, who the fuck is that? Why have you been hiding me? Who the fuck did that? Wow. Why were you hiding that? Who is that? Oh <laughs> wow. my God. That's amazing. And he goes, and my dad says, Oh my God, it's, it's Robbie. They used to call me Robbie when I was a kid. Right. He goes, you mean Robbie, your son, Robbie? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you have to send him to Purple. You have to send him to um, uh, Paisley Park like tomorrow. Like I need him. I'm going to put him in the family. Wow. Uh, which was one. Which was I don't know if you know who the family was, but that was another one of the bands. Yeah. That was like the time or, wow. or Vanity or. All the way back in those days, he had Paisley Park, and that's where everything would happen. Oh, that's yeah. so yeah. cool. Yeah, there was a studio. I don't know if it was the the Paisley. It might have been. Wow. Did you go? No, he didn't tell me till I was uh, 38. Oh, my God. <laughs> you are kidding. Oh, my God. Yeah. He, once, once he realized that he was in, in trouble, he That's said, dis-ownership. you're not getting my son. You're going to corrupt him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you feel about that when he told you? I realized it was probably okay. I mean, I would have been swept up into a whole other right. world. And I think I would have been intimidated because I would have learned a lot. It would have been, a, it would have been baptism by fire because Prince is notorious for expecting genius out of his musicians like really and then you have to potentially be on call like you know 72 hours at a time and I was just a teenager and I was yeah. either in ninth or 10th grade they were having a whole other thing going on over at that place I mean there's a part of me that always goes what if but you know I don't really feel bad about it because I never really knew and, and by the time he told me my life had already I'd right. already won a Grammy so I you know or something so right. I was like okay so yeah. I want to go back you had this kind of self-knowledge in this moment when you were going on stage at the Whiskey that performing was not the thing that really turned you on, yeah. but but creating and, and dissecting and then creating amazing, specific productions of, of songs was where it was at. Did you become an engineer fairly young too? Yeah, I was doing engineering and I didn't even really know it, but I uh-huh. was practicing being a producer. I had no idea. What it turned into very quickly was I realized that I'm actually here to help artists. I'm here to serve them. I can help them. I can help them navigate the, you know, the pitfalls of the studio and and really help get the best out of them. That's what I think I I do the best. If an artist has a song or an album inside of them that they want to get out and they're trying to get a sound, I think it's my job to get them to absolutely just can't believe how good their record is and can't believe that they went that deep to mm-hmm. pull the best music out of them and the the most impactful emotional lyrics and and music as possible. It's very intimate. It is. It's a good it's a good way of putting it. Because when you're in there, really, if you're not all the way deep in with the artist, 
you're not making the best record. I would tell you that a lot of the best songs I've ever done that have either sold the most or have won the most awards have all come out of conversations that I've had with the artist about what they're feeling, what they want to communicate. And it comes usually a day or two after we've had the conversation. You can ask me about records and I can tell you some stories about some songs, you know, if you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was the first time that happened? How, how I was old were ask, you? Yeah. yeah. What? I mean, that segue from one, from being a performer to saying, this is what I want to do. And then you segued into the production side and to be a producer. That's a pretty big change. I mean, that's a whole, you know, different career path. Yeah. Well, what really happened real quick, I mean, there's two answers to what you, two questions there. One was, is after I went to USC, uh, I got my record ex- expunged from being kicked out of high school because I, they, you know, they let me back in because I would play basketball. <laughs> and um, For our audience, he's kind of a tall guy. Yeah, I'm kind of tall. I mean, I'm only 6'2", but I could dunk and, and our team, you know, went and I played at the sports arena and we you know, we won CIF small schools, which was pretty cool in 1981. And then I, and then what happened was, is after I got an English degree from USC, I didn't know what the hell to do. And my dad said, you know what? I think you're a producer or like an A&R guy. And I had actually produced a couple of tracks and the guys at Warner Brothers, like, like Lenny Warnicker and Ted Templeman and Michael Austin heard some tracks that I made. And, you know, they said to me one time, they go, you're, um, so you did this at at uh, at a studio. Who paid for the tape? And I said, Well, I got the I got the studio on spec. They go, Well, you own the tape. They go, You know what? This isn't good enough necessarily for Warner Brothers because we were watching this band, but you could get this band signed. What are you going to do with it? And I said, um, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go make a better tape because I think it'll be. Uh, I'll, I'll find a better band because I want to do something that's even better. And they said, You know what? We're going to hire you right now. And they said, <laughs> they, I'll never forget. They looked at each other. They go, Five hundred a week, kid. You're on staff. A and R. A&R rep, which was like the low guy in the totem pole. Which but you was, were still getting paid. <laughs> I was getting something, yeah. And it was it was amazing. I was like, oh, my God, I just made it into hollowed grounds. I mean, this is the, the hollowed halls of Warner Brothers and, and, and staff producing and, and all that kind of stuff. Can you explain what an A&R person does for the audience? Yeah. Um, A&R is artisan repertoire. And it really goes back to the old record days when you would sign an artist and then you would find their songs. And then you would book an arranger. So it would be like Frank Sinatra – Summer Wind, Nelson Riddle Orchestra, right? You know, that's kind of what you would do. Um, of course, the Beatles changed that, although it, because they wrote their own songs. But still, George Martin was the staff producer at EMI that said, hey, I know, I think I know how to record you guys. And let's have a, let's have this relationship where, you know, tell me how you want to sound and I'll facilitate it. Because they, they th- those... You know, they were young guys playing clubs. They didn't know about all the technology that's in the studio. And that's really kind of what happens. That's that's where you're the bridger of the gap of music and knowledge about what camp, what like what notes and theory mm-hmm. and harmony. Sounds and stuff. like being an interpreter. It is a bit. And then also knowing the technical stuff about like why this microphone, where, um, what kind of compressor, like, and you are interpreting because you're always looking at the, at the artists and they're looking at the speakers, you're looking at the speakers and you're hearing back what you did, especially in rock and roll music, because there's so many different kinds of like every rock band really is the chemistry of those players. And you want to capture it correctly so that when people put the record on, they feel that sense of excitement and urgency. So that goes back to that first question. So the first time it ever really happened was on the second record I ever produced was Green Day's Dookie, which sold 15 million copies. That's a lot. And you, you, and let, you know, you need, we need to acknowledge too that 
as an A&R guy, you recognize that they could go from being rather underground, sort of, to being much more, well, blowing up. My sales pitch to Warner Brothers Records was, these guys have sold 15,000 records on their own out of the, you know, out of a one-man record company. I think we could sell 100,000. I think there's like 100,000 cool kids that remember what punk was, and this might work. You know, so they gave me... uh, I think we I think we signed them for two hundred grand. We gave them a van, <laughs> the bookmobile, which was awesome, which gave me one hundred and five thousand dollars to make the record. And you sold fifteen million dollars. Yeah, and back then the wholesale gross on a CD was ten dollars. So on a two hundred twenty five thousand dollar investment with about another two hundred thousand dollars, maybe or three hundred thousand dollars in videos and other kinds of marketing. So maybe call it a half a mil. They grossed one hundred and fifty million dollars. That's unbelievable. And they are yeah. they are are and were seminal. I mean, I mean, like they really, in terms of like taking punk and pulling it and making it relevant over and over and over again. Yeah, they were the first wave. I always say like, if you're going to be an A&R guy today and you want to sign something and, you know, David Foster says this too. We used to talk about it all the time. We'd say like, pick a lane, pick a lane where people aren't. Like, in other words, there's a lot of bands that follow Green Day and there's and there's a lot of rappers that followed, um, you know, NWA and I mean, those and, and you know, and Eminem. There's people that that come after, which is great. But you know what? The, like Dr. Dre is freaking Dr. Dre. Those the, if you're the first wave of something, it's it's always oh, it's always so much more powerful. It's always so. Where was he prescient? Dr. Yeah. Dre. I mean, what came after him was unbelievable. I mean, they're the originators. They're 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 the creators. It's of that particular that particular that West Coast rap. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's other rap from obviously before and on and East Coast stuff, but that particular just as an example, just like you say, like Black Sabbath. People mention the band Black Sabbath. You go, oh my God, they invented heavy metal, and they yeah. really did, and right. they were the first ones that did it. They the first ones to tune the guitar way down. The first ones, you know, to sing about sort of the psychological state of man and drugs and all kinds of things, and sort of being a lost soul of you know young men lost, you know, lost. You know, and singing about sex and things like that and having like the aggression of it come out through this really finely tuned playing with heavy distorted guitars. I mean, they'll always get credited. And it's funny, you know, having been chairman of Warner Brothers Records and having had the license for those records in the United States, I can tell you that their catalog, even today with Pandora and Spotify and everything, kids today, when they go, oh, you're into heavy metal, listen to Black Sabbath because their royalties are, are fantastic. I mean, they still sell a heap ton of, uh, of records. What do you think in general today about the music that's being played? Oh, I think we're in, I think it's always better than we like to say sometimes, um, but it is in more of a transition right now, maybe than ever before, because there's a lot of follow. there's a lot of copycat sounding things. And it used to be that it was almost so hard to make music that it was easier to be original. What I mean by that is you had to learn how to play an instrument and you had to really find, and your own style came from the fact that your own hands and fingers were touching the keys or the strings or the drums or whatever and you were singing and you had to do that real time like there's a piano right over there I could play that piano right now and anything that I play and sing would happen right then right but with the, com- the computer now there's a lot of kids that have such taste but they don't necessarily have to go through all the discipline of learning how to play and sing at the same time so what you can do is sit you could be on an airplane put on some headphones and have a whole orchestra at your fingertips you know because the computer is its own instrument and 
because you're basically controlling a program that, you know, musical program that's like a sequencer and you're, you're picking sounds and sure it's people are original and they do their own thing and certainly everyone has their own sound. It's just, I actually find it to be that there's something slightly removed from the physical part of it that I think makes it harder to be original. And I think that's kind of what we're struggling with in a way. Because once you hear a computer play it and you can, I mean, trust me, all you listeners out there, I know, I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> I know everything about it and I know how to, you know, you know, what percent you sway and how much you can fix and how much you, you know, there's all this really intense, you know, arcane language about how I could start talking a language that most listeners wouldn't understand about the music and how it would work and how you, the computer manipulates the music. And you can, and certainly there's originality in that. So I don't want to say that it's not original. I'm just saying it's tougher, I think, to be original. What would you put if you could today, and we were going to put some music into a time capsule that has happened already, what would you think generations from now people will still be listening to? Okay, so as a record executive, what I do is I kind of play my own head sometimes, which means that I'm on purpose not listening to all the latest, greatest stuff and have a list of it in my head. I mean, I know how great Kendrick Lamar is. Okay, so I should say, Kendrick, I love that. He's amazing. Mm, He's good. He's unbe- yeah, I think he's unbelievable. I and mean, I think he just won a, you know, Pulitzer. a Pulitzer Prize yeah. and truly deserves it because his lyrics are genius and his music are genius, is genius. And I think that – and his playing is genius. So those – how they make that record is amazing. So I think that would go in there for me. But what I do kind of do is, is have, a, have a basic awareness of what's going on, but I don't totally dive into it because I'm also really trying to capture my own thing with my own artists. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be watered down by listening or become a follower or be too influenced by everything that's going on now. Because like I said before, I'm trying to pick a lane. Right. What would you think if you could take, go back, you know, Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, um, you know, any of the bands that came along in our lifetimes till today, who of those bands do you think will be listened to 50 years from today? Well, definitely the ones you just mentioned. Those are the best ones. And they've already proven that they're the ones to be listened to because, you know, we go back and we, you know, real quickly, you just go like, oh, the 60s. Okay, so we got the Who, we got the Beatles, we got the Stones, we got the Monkeys, who are huge, by the way. Oh, my God. And we have the Beach Boys, right? So we just named five or six bands. I forgot about the Beach Boys. They were amazing. Yeah, I mean, those the Beach Boys were influencing the Beatles. Van Morrison. Yeah, there you go. Then there's probably hundreds of other artists that we don't have on the tip of our tongue. Right. Who might have had hits and, and might have been really good. You know, yeah, like, as or Tom like Hanks a, said, one hit wonders, right? Yeah, there's one hit wonders or 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 like a guy like Jim Croce, who was amazing mm. and had like, you know, five or six yep. really, really great hits and probably six or seven really, really great records. Um, or like, oh, how about this from the 70s? Like like when I go back and I listen to any Randy Newman album ever. Yeah, for sure. I just go, oh OK, God. this guy is genius. <laughs> so funny too. And so great and so poignant and so smart and stunning, really. Yeah. And it's like that stuff should be listened to, you know, yeah. but he might end up being remembered more for his, you know, his Disney Pixar music than I think what the real important stuff was. It's hard for me. I've had this conversation um, with other people in your business. I listen to the music that's out today. Some of it, um, for example, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, all these girls get so much acclaim. Mm-hmm. I can't understand it at all. And I recognize that I'm old, but the music sounds very f- f- phony to me. You know, the actual music. It do, it's not these heartfelt, wonderful singing songs that you want to sing along to. And clearly I'm old and, you know, decrepit and grumpy and I'm not a 16-year-old <laughs> girl. But I can't determine whether or not these things will be considered to be timeless. And I don't know whether it's because of my age or I just don't understand their music. Like I'm sure my parents didn't understand why I like the Beatles. 
But I don't, I don't know whether these people will stand the test of time. I do think that the Beatles will stand the test of time. I think that young people today probably know just as many Beatles songs as they did when we were growing up. They do. You know, and it's amazing. These guys were only together for seven years. Yeah. You know, seven years. Yeah, from Meet the Beatles to to um, to Sgt. Pepper's in about four and a half years. That's yeah. an arc with you know with with um, Rubber Soul and um, and Revolver in, inside of that. And yesterday, and t- I mean, yeah. these are that's that's un- you just that's named un- my two favorite Beatles albums. Incredible, and they right. were so prolific. I mean, to think about the fact that they were together for three hundred and fifty weeks, and in that three hundred and fifty weeks, they put out more music than most people do in a lifetime. Yeah. And it's it's it was a absolutely different stunning. Back then. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it was a different schedule, and I think that people were so. Um, we had we interviewed Nigel Sinclair, who made the Beatles the touring years, mm. and I had never. I was too young to really have known what they were going through, and I didn't realize until I saw that movie how, for example, the Jesus Christ comments, how attacked they were because oh, of yeah. that, and I didn't really understand that, and how much um, how horrible their lives were. That no matter where they went. They couldn't move, so I didn't. I didn't get it, but you know that opened up a whole. Oh yeah, they had so much power, and they had so much people looking at them. I mean, there were people that were against them and thought that the music was bad and dangerous. There's always that great pick, you know, that little shot where the guy says Beatles records, and he smashes one on the desk, you know, and it just crumples into little bits, you know. Or they did that to Elvis too, like you can't show Elvis. And I always thought that that music was kind of the canary in the coal mine in a way, but we were the music were the people that were singing about what was happening. They were the most, the earliest reflectors of culture right? and how people were feeling. And I think that's maybe the one sort of potential tragedy is that it, it seems less so now because there's so much other distraction with the internet and other things and video games and things that we have that distract kids. But there used to be this amazing quickening or coming together of people over a record because it'd be like, oh, do you feel that record? Yeah. I feel that way. Oh, my God, I can't believe he's saying that or she's saying that. And, you know, if you had Joan Baez or or uh, uh, any of the, you know, there's just so many people or Bob Dylan, you know, who were singing stuff that were like, hey, he's a prophet. You know, this is unbelievable. Or, you know, singing about what's happening to us. I, I think uh, Childish Gambino's This Is America, that video mm-hmm. that just came out, it should be that galvanizing moment. Because he's just showing things that have actually happened in the recent past in the video, and it's horrific to watch. Right. I mean, that's a really good example. Yeah. There's a couple of great things about that video, This Is America. One is, he made it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's out. Yay. Fuck yeah, that's awesome. And the second one is that I think in the first two days, it got something like 60 million views in America, which means whatever that is, that's a fifth of the country has already watched it, unless it's, you know, or at least a, a quarter. But I wish that song would be played on Kiss FM, though. How do you pick an artist now, given everything that you've just talked about? One thing is I always like there to be a great singer with a new sound or at least old sounds, a couple of old sounds stuck together in a new way, just kind of what the Beatles did or what Prince did. And I want the lyrics. I want the, I want him to have a lens that he filters his worldview through that I can relate to to a degree because I'm going to fight to the death for it. Whatever it is that I'm I'm going to sign, I want to kill for it because you have to die a little to make a great record and to sell a great record and get it over the hump because otherwise people are just not going to pay attention. So what a powerful thing to say. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's so awesome. You know, I fight in the studio and then I fight with the executives and I, you know, I'm constantly on, you know, standing watch and, and vigilant, you know, for my artists. I mean, that's what I did with Green Day way back when and the Goo Goo Dolls at the beginning of my first two signings. I have so many stories about, you know, conversations that could have went one way or the other. Do you want to? 
Well, one was like when I first delivered Green Day's Dookie, the, the guy who, God bless him, he's, a, he's amazing. He did, he, it was an amazing conversation. He said to me, when are you going to mix it? This was the promotion guy. The guy who's going to take it to radio. He <laughs> says, when are you going to mix it? It sounds like it was mis- mixed on a Fisher Price board. Oh, and I said, heavens. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you know, let me tell you, can I just, can I, before you go down that road, can I just tell you? I go, right now we're in the world of grunge and this is different music. This is much faster tempos and I can't have those big reverbs and those big giant, you know, hanging over sounds with the darkness because if I had a, if I put a big fat reverb on the snare, then the next snare would come before the, before the reverb died down and it wouldn't sound right. And I said, and there's history to this music. I want you to hear the detail between the bass and the drums and everything. So it's going to be, and it's much faster. So it's going to sound tighter and higher than the bands from Seattle right now. But I think it's also more colorful and I think it's going to sound refreshing. But if you like the Buzzcocks and you, you know, you loved, um, you know, London Calling or the Ramones or anybody, you know, you might really, really like Green Day. And so give it a chance. And he says, oh, okay, I get that. Yeah, so you could speak a language and translate for the guy so he could just withhold his judgment until it played a little bit. Yeah. Did he agree it's with you when he heard it? Well, he had heard it. He had heard it. He said it's mixed on Fisher Price. And then I said what I said. And then he went, you know what? You're probably right. You know what? That's cool. I said, because why not try to start something new? I said, wow. I could give you, I could give you grunge. I, I said, there's already, you know, there's already Soundgarden and and five and Pearl Jam and, and, and Nirvana. I could run up to Seattle and sign another one. I said, I'll be number four. <laughs> I said, four in line isn't 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 bad but i think i'd rather can i be first in line can i yeah. can we do something new and that was so, what was so great about but Green. he trusted you he did trust me and, and that was really the culture that was set up at warner brothers at the time and him his name was steve tip he was a great guy great promotion guy because he worked this, the first single Longview for six months before it started to grab but then when it grabbed oh boy did it grab it mm-hmm. went to number one and it stayed for like two months yeah, it was so refreshing to hear on the radio. Yeah, we had five number one singles in a row on Dookie and ended up selling $10 million in the States. I have a Diamond Record Award for that one. Wow. And wow. Uh, and another five out. So, you know, for, for outside the world, you know, for... They're not playing together as a band anymore, are they? No, I think they are. I think I think maybe, I'm not sure. I think Billy's doing a solo thing right now, which mm-hmm. he's always wanted to do, which is great. But I'm sure they'll always be Green Day. I remember so clearly when they hit the ground, you know, and I was listening to their music. It feels like it was yesterday, although it clearly wasn't. But I remember that going, wow, love this. This is fantastic. And you got producer of the year. You got a Grammy for that, right? Well, no, that was later. So, oh, okay. Um, it was probably ninety eight or something. I actually forgot ninety eight or ninety nine. But what it was was there was a there was this movie called City of Angels that my dad was producing with Don Steele and Chuck Rovin, who are great people, and um, starring Meg Ryan and um, Nicolas Cage. And they said to me, "Come, why don't you? Can you just come and?" Uh, just go watch this movie, bring a couple of artists, right? So my dad was managing Alanis Morissette and I had given him also the Goo Goo Dolls. But he, so, so I went, got Alanis and the Goo Goo Dolls to come with me. We watched this movie and we thought, this is a good movie. This actually feels like it bears the weight of good music, like it would want good music. And the next morning at around 11 o'clock, I get, the, I get a call from Alanis and she goes, I wrote this song. I think it's about that Meg Ryan character and do you want to produce it? And it was called um, Uninvited. And then the next song, then I get a half an hour later i get a call from johnny and he's like i just wrote this song it's called iris oh my i think God. it's about the nicholas cage character do you want to produce it <laughs> you know and i was like yeah and it's funny because i could play you the demos of those two songs they were not quite what it, what they ended up to be but that was that thing about where you have to die a little like we went in on both cases and 
were absolutely stumped a couple of times in the studio. I was banging my head against the desk like, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, and there were some people at Reprise and Maverick who were who were kind of like worried about about Alanis, this song being Alanis Morissette's next song because she had just sold 30 million records, had the biggest selling song, a record for any female, first time female artist ever. And they were like, you know, we don't even think you should do this song. Because it's kind of dark and weird. Because if you heard the demo, it had no drums and it was very dark. And I said to them, let's just, you don't want to say no to her right now. Why don't you just put a kill fee in? Just put a kill fee. <laughs> You're so smart. <laughs> You're so smart. <laughs> what a great idea. But I- but I also said, I think there's a rock song in this in there somewhere. So anyways, we went in and you guys know the story. We came out with Uninvited and Iris. Iris is still to this day the number one most played song in North American radio since since it came out in 1996. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Beats everybody, which is kind of crazy when people see it. It's because it was a multi-format hit. And the, hit be- the song became a hit in England like three separate times. Oh, it's a fantastic song. Anyways, Uninvited and Iris were one was number one and number two, and then number two and number one, and then it was going back and forth. And then also that year, there was a Green Day song. We, I did a record with them called Nimrod, and there was a record on there called uh, Time of Your Life, or Good Riddance. So when I had those three songs, plus a couple other things, I got nominated for Producer of the Year. I'll never forget it. Barely made it to the, to the Shrine Auditorium on time. <laughs> I sat down for about two seconds. They go, and now for producer of the year. And the winner is Rob Cavallo. And I <laughs> I had to go up there. <laughs> I, I almost died. <laughs> it was, Did it was that, awesome. I mean, and David Foster handed me my award. Oh, yeah, which so is great. Sweet. And he said to me this great advice. He goes, whatever you do, don't lose this don't lose this piece of paper, which was the, pa- the paper that had the award on it. And, of course, I lost it that oh. night. <laughs> Somebody probably stole it and auctioned it. Oh, man, I tell you. I <laughs> they just probably told that. that's probably what happened to it. So now we're going along. You're having this amazing career. And somewhere along the line, I want to talk about your personal life a little bit. Along the line, along the way, you met and fell in love with your wife. Yeah, Kim. And who's fantastic. And we were honored and blessed to have had an interview with her. So you guys get married. You're living in L.A. Your father is a giant in the industry. And you guys get married and have some children. Now, are either one of your children in this business? Yes, my two. Well, what my one boy is 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 still in high school, so he's. Uh, but he's a really fine player. He can play jazz, guitar, and piano, which is kind of amazing um, to me because he just pretty much learned it on his own. We had so he he like did what dad. you did. Yeah, and he did. We had one teacher that taught him some things, but it was only like two months worth of lessons, and then he he put it together. And then my older son is in the industry, and he works for Sarah Stennett at First Access Entertainment, and he's managing bands. And he's he's not only a top liner and a, and a beat maker. He's amazing. He frustrates me because I think he has more talent than me by a lot. I mean, you can just play a couple of chords and he'll sing a top line right over the top of it in two seconds. And it's always, it always has good value. Maybe he's stubborn like his old man. He just didn't, he didn't want to study. He has so much natural talent, but you can't teach him anything. He just has to do it himself. How old is he? He's 21 now. Yeah. You know, time. (laughs) Yeah, he's great. I mean, the the funny thing is is I have, I absolutely know he's going to kill it in this industry. I mean, he already, he already is actually. He just found an artist that's great and... Hopefully he'll be able to sign her, and and uh, and I guarantee if they get to go off and make records and play in that sandbox, they're they're going to win. It really says a lot too. What you just said is go off in this industry and kill it. What a tough business you're in. This is such a hard business. Everything has changed. You know, they grind you. Nobody wants to pay for music. They want to get it for free. They feel like they're entitled to get it for free. And when you say to them, no, you got to pay a fee to get, you know, nine ninety nine a month for all the music that you want to hear, they oh, I don't want to pay that. It's actually gotten way better. You know, if you drew a, you know, a single line chart graph of the music business, it went down 
you know, by half pretty much if you want to just take the whole thing. And then and then in the last two years, it's just started coming up. And, and hopefully Spotify and Apple Music will, you know, they're paying and and they're paying to keep artists and, and, and companies alive so that we can still have this great art form. But they don't if it, in the in the business model of an Apple Music or a spot. I don't know really much about uh, the way Spotify delivers music, but the artists themselves don't make the lion's share of the 99 cent download. And they're, they're, oh. they're, they're, well, they make such a small amount of money compared to the way it used to be. Well, yeah, we could go down the whole thing. I mean, you know, you when you said 99 cent download, that's actually a sale. That's a download sale. And uh, Apple will take 33 cents or 30 cents of it. And then the record company gets 60 cents. And then the artist gets its whatever points they have off of that whole, that wholesale number. Which is anywhere between sixteen to twenty-two cents, or twenty-two percent mm-hmm. of that. Streaming is very different. You know, Apple and Spotify basically. I mean, the, the sort of the rule of thumb is is, is sort of like if a hundred million streams on uh, YouTube will pay the owner of that content five thousand dollars. A hundred million streams on Spotify will pay the owner of that content five hundred thousand dollars. Interesting. Yeah. So we have, there's a Google problem there, and that's a big thorny thing to talk about. And I used to lobby on behalf of the RIAA in, in Washington, and there were bills that SOPA and PIPA, which weren't passed. This is Bob Goodlatte, written bills, sponsored bills that didn't pass because Google is so powerful and they can, they can make it be a First Amendment right issue. And they you know, flood Congress with 7 million uh, letters or emails in, in one weekend. And that's a really tough thing to fight. But at the same time, I don't get – while I do think the laws are out of date and need to be changed and make it so there isn't this giant – sort of leech on the music on the music business back i still stay really positive about it because they're i mean as a chairman during the hard times Mm -hmm. i actually had to fire people who's you know they're the loves of their life their chosen career was the music business and they had to go like you know sell real estate or do something else which is really sad yeah that sucks and i did have a dinner with sean parker in in uh, 2008 or 9 or whatever it was and i got to berate him (laughs) for a while not much good he still said we had to do it and i and i in the end i said there were other ways to do it but i understand where you're coming from because yeah it's hard to understand where he was coming from well he just was saying we're moving they look at it like we're moving technology forward and this is what we can do. So the music industry as we know it has clearly changed. You're evolving into a new next generation, next chapter of your life. Let's talk about what your view is of the music industry today in general and where where yeah. you think things are going. I'd love to talk about that. I mean, I still think that how music is consumed and sold is different and its cultural relevance in some ways is different because it seems less important. The good news is, is that it's on the rise and more people around the world are consuming more music today than ever before. So the actual consumption is up. And I think as these different uh, subscription services achieve scale, you know, if they have 40 or 80 million uh, users worldwide or Spotify and Apple, something around that, I mean, it'll be, it could absolutely go to 500 million paid users in you know in in a few short years that could happen because everyone's just going to eventually realize oh here's where it is oh i'm just going to bundle it into my and i get my new my next phone and it's and it's going to be five bucks a month and and i get the world's music at my fingertips i mean that's kind of worth it i think that's actually worth it we can talk about how the music is different and it's changed and we consume it differently at the same time i will tell you that it's still exactly the same old music business because in the end result it's an artist with a heart Mm-hmm. And a voice and a song and a lyric and they're feeling an emotion and then they, they sing that song and then the audience feels it and it's fucking great. And that communication and that 
inter- exchange is so beautiful. And I think it's just a great thing. That's why I still I have a joint venture with Capitol Records with Steve Barnett and Ashley Newton. They're fantastic. And uh, I've signed a couple of artists and I'm managing a couple of artists and, and I'm still chasing, I think, forever until I die. I'll, have, I'll you, be chasing the next new sound and the next great singer. Do you want to tell us about some of them? Yeah, I have this one kid named Liam Horn who's just unbelievable. He's from Scotland and uh, he's a gypsy. He lives in a caravan. He's like that Brad Pitt character in, in the movie Snatch. Mm-hmm. And a traveler. Father, they call him travelers. Yeah, yeah. his father is a bare knuckle boxer. And we're basically taking Motown and soul music an R&B music from the 50s and 60s and mixing it with a, sort of a how you make modern hip hop and trap drums and trap music and but then at the same time putting actual songs on top because he's a great singer. How old is he? He's 21 and I just can't wait for the world to hear him. I I know we made a really great record. I just think it's it's I have that feeling again which which is such a rare thing. So exciting. Yeah, I, I love it. So I can't wait for people to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> In that particular case, is he bringing the material or are you guys helping him? How does that work? Well, I went to Lucy and Grange first and he said, "I think you'll be of help service here. Go go find a label you want to partner with." And then Ashley and Steve were the were the right home inside of Universal. And then I was thinking about it, I'm going like, "Well, I'm 55 and I could reinvent myself again as a producer because I always work I always get work. Like I just finished a Dave Matthews Band record and I and I'm working with Sublime You're right now." You're always working. Yeah, I always get calls and I just did the theme song for Young Sheldon, you know, the yeah. Big Bang Theory spin By the Theory way, spin-off. you told me that and that's the reason I watched that show and that show I never watched the other one, the grown-up one. Uh-huh. That show is so cute. Yeah, the little great? kid on that show is so cute. He's yeah, so he's, talented. He's amazing. You know, and I also I just did uh, School of Rock, the Broadway play with with Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was fantastic to work with. So I have that kind of stuff. But I thought, you know, what? I should get a younger partner. I should get a partner that's that's younger than me, and and see if I can help him. And then he'll bring in stuff that I don't necessarily have, like basically knowledge of how to how to produce hip hop and rap and and you know, certain new ways of using the computer. So um, his name is Rich Skills and we formed a partnership and he had had found this kid, Liam. Mm -hmm. And so I came in, now we're co-producing it. And uh, I would say that, and they're, they're basically right. I have, they write the songs really. I help a little bit here and there, but in terms of the production, I've, they say I slave drive them and push them hard, but I also, I know. (laughs) It's probably true, but so what? That is the, uh, but that's the thing that, that I know, which is how to get it to really sound finished and be really complete and to have sort of grinded out all the arrangements and really mm-hmm. make it great. Mm-hmm. You sound so optimistic. You sound so like jazzed about the music business and the state of the music business and what you're doing in the music business. You sound like happy. I am. I'm actually really happy about it. I could be, I, maybe I'm really dumb and stupid. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I know but, that's not true. No, I don't, I don't think so either. But I, but I do think that it's actually the only way to approach it. I've always thought that, you know, if you're having great vibes in the studio and people are having a good time, that when they put on your record, that vibe is going to come right out of the speakers. Right. And you want it to be good, right? You want it to be happy and uplifting and, or at least whatever emotion it is that you're trying, I mean, or if it's angry, I mean, I've done a lot of angry music too, um, or sad music, you, you just want it to be what that is. So if you're coming out it with energy and enthusiasm, then I think it'll happen. I just am excited because it's, I still think it's the funnest thing you can do. Yeah. One of the funnest things. And you were totally born to do it. It's just such an incredible story. Yeah, thanks. So I do think I was born to do it. You know, to to kind of sound cheesy, it's like, you know, I once went to a psychic and they said, well, remember when you had that thing where you thought maybe you should be an artist? No, you were were put here to help artists and not be one, not be a full one. Really? Maybe be like half a one. Yeah, that's what she said to me. And I was like, well, that's kind of good to hear because that's definitely what's worked 
for me. And that is it's, so interesting. And I do love it. I feel a feeling of satisfaction. It's when you can when you jump out of bed because you know you're going to go do something that you love that day. That's there's nothing that beats yeah. that. I know when I first met you and you lived in Hidden Hills with your beautiful studio in your house, and you sold that beautiful studio and came closer into town because the drive is horrible. Yeah. And you came into town. Do you miss having that studio in your house? Sometimes. The funny thing about a studio is like that studio was in use every day for 12 years in a row. And I remember just looking at this place and at one point going like, I think we wore it out. I think, <laughs> I think like the vibe was – it was so hot for so long and the vibe kind of left and something new had to happen. So, so I was okay. With it. At first it hurt because I put it all in storage and I waited two years. And then we built a little studio that I can walk to from my house. It's right on Ventura Boulevard, right across from Record one where Dr. Dre is. And we have like what's called a, like a modern recording room, which is which is very small. It's just it's got one vocal booth or you can play yeah. you can play acoustic guitars in there and everything and you can have electric guitars and you can have a couple instruments, but really it's all keyboards, guitars, you know, and stuff that you're making out of the computer. So what do you think the next wave of the music industry is? Where do you think things are going? I'll tell you one thing that I've learned from history, which is that usually you can tell what's happening coming from the underground. And usually the next wave of music is usually informed by some combination of some musical styles that have just recently been. So like a great example, if you take the Beatles, you take take American rock and roll, right? You know, you take Chuck Berry and you take Little Richard and you take Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers with the harmonies. And then you take 40s big band swing because that's what the, the Beatles parents were listening to. And then you take skiffle music from the North, which is kind of a faster, rough, rough and tumble kind of music. And what do you get? You get Mercy Beat. You get, that's what they called that Beatles movement that they came out of. Named the Mercy the Beat. River Mersey. Right after the, yeah, the Mersey. Yeah. Or you could look at Prince and you could say, well, you know, he had funk music. Music, and he had Beatles and he had he had Jimi Hendrix guitar. He had all these things inside of him, right? So now if you look if you look through that at that lens through today, what do you what do you get? Certainly there's there's trap and there's hip hop. It's funny, I get I got a call from this great artist um, who unfortunately passed away before his time. His, his name was Lil Peep. And oh, God, what a tragedy. Yeah. Really sad. He called me and he was like, I really love the music you made. I love emo. You know, and I did Jawbreaker, Dear You, which is one of a seminal emo band and and and, and you love my chemical romance and you love Green Day and he goes, I love that stuff. He goes, I want to mix that with trap music. And can you write with me? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we had we had a couple of dinners and then we went in the studio. And then um, the next thing you know, we had this song called um, Ben's Truck, which um, now has, I don't know. Well, the last time I looked, it had like 110 Huge. million views on it. Say, which it, is Say it again. L-I-L-P-E-E-P. Yeah. And what's the so name of that song? Ben's Truck. It was a crazy session because I started playing some, he was like, make it darker, you know, play this. And I was like, Okay, and I started to come up with stuff because they took what I played and they de- detuned it by like a, almost a whole octave, and <laughs> it's crazy sounding record. And um, that's an example of new, like a new form that didn't exist because it was two forms stuck together. Mm-hmm. And he had the personality and the, and the musical might to actually be able to do that. So you know, when I look at my kid Liam Horn, I go like, so what's happening there? He's taking fifties and sixties R and B and soul music and Motown and mixing it with with hip hop and and trap. And, you know, and crooning over it. He's kind of a cross between like uh, Sam Cooke and and uh, like Donny Hathaway or something. What is coming next? I don't know. But I know the funny thing is, you. I know when I hear it, 
And I certainly could start right now constructing, hey, what if we take this musical form and put it with this one and then see. But what you really need, though, is the kid who was born to do it. That's yeah. the trick. You can't just do it. I can't just will it. Right. <laughs> you need that guy. You know, I, remember I go back to when I was 30 or, or 27 or 28. And I go when I look back on it, I go like, oh, man, I, I see why I got to produce Green Day and why they chose me. It's because when I went back to those crazy demos I was making when I was a teenager, I was making their music like I was on their wavelength. Yeah. We yeah. weren't trying to be anybody but who we were. So we were like the right guys at the right time. You have such an interesting combination of an ear and a nurturing side of you where you're able to nurture these artists and pull the best out of them. They must feel very safe in your hands. I try to make them feel safe because what they're doing is actually really scary. Because most artists, like the really great ones, what they're doing is, is they're basically saying to the entire world, here's my music, here's my heart, I'm totally naked, please like me. Yeah, yeah. Because if, if you don't like me, I'm going to work at a gas and, station or and something. And you have to keep them being who they are and doing what they're there to do and not second guessing them themselves, right? Like All in, the, the time. in the room, you're just constantly, constantly saying, no, you, you're what your heart is telling you to do. It's interesting. Uh, the better word is yes. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> better is yes. You're great. You're, yeah. You got this. This is awesome. You know, like if I'm into it and my energy and the engineer is energy is like, oh my God, I love that. Yeah. Then artists will love to ride that. They, they, they're on it with you. you. You have something else too, which is the ability to pick up an instrument and say yes by playing something that says yes to the idea. Oh yeah. That's worked for me a lot. Like the first time I met with Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac, obviously he played me a bunch of songs and I was told he was kind of a scary character because he, he's just so sharp. You know, he just knows. I mean, this is the guy who really freaking produced rumors. I know there's producers on rumors that produce it, but the music part of it, so much of it was him, you know, My and favorite. the others. My favorite song of all time is on that album, Landslide. Yeah. Which I play 8,000 times when my children you moved out of the house. You torture yourself oh with my that God. song. Yeah. I mean, two geniuses. You have Lindsay and Stevie I know, doing right? their thing. I mean, her lyrics and her voice and the way she sings and his playing, is it's just unbelievable. But when I first met Lindsay, he played me these songs and then he said, tell me, what, you know, what, what do you think? And I was like, well, on this song, I would just do this. And I picked up a guitar and I started playing, well, I would have this, do this and do that. And on this song, I would do that. And then he liked it because I don't think anyone had ever ever talked to him like that for quite some time because he's freaking Lindsey Buckingham. Yeah. And I kind of thought, well, I'll either shoot or die. I'll get killed because I, I didn't have anything to lose. So I figured I'll just be super real with a guy. You're so authentic. Like and you so, just bring what you have and do it. And you have such a beautiful ego about it. Like it's strong <laughs> enough to stand up and do that, but not so strong that you overpower. Yeah, I'm not trying to overpower it because I, I think that's part of that thing that happened when I was a kid where I was when I was 18. I was like, I don't I'm not an artist. Producing is a is a super, super fine, amazing profession. I don't need more than that. It's it's amazing. So yeah, so when I told Lindsay all those things, he, I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, well, if you want those things to happen, then you have to be there when it, when we when we record it. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. And I kind of said, what does that mean? He goes, I want you to produce me, man. That's awesome. <laughs> He's great. I love him. It's been amazing having you here. Well, really. Thank you, thank you so Thanks, much. Rob. It was really loved a lot of fun. Loved this conversation. Loved listening to this. And I'm just so grateful that you came today. So thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Next time, our guest is Kylan Moore. He is living proof that you can escape the bad hand that life deals you. He found himself growing up in the scary and dangerous city of Compton in Los Angeles. It became famous for rappers Kendrick Lamar, MC Ren, Eazy-E, and Dr. Dre. But it also became notorious for gang violence and murder. It was a rough beginning for the kid who spent many nights lying awake, but who overcame all obstacles and turned his life around. 
He is a poster boy for every kid deprived of hope in downtrodden communities, and he credits his mother for fleeing an abusive husband as Kylan embraced her faith in God and education. This helped him avoid the gang violence, and he went on to excel on the football field and in the classroom, eventually becoming an author, a speaker, and a Rhodes Scholar. Along the way, he co-founded a student organization that brought college athletes into underserved classrooms as inspirational speakers, role models, and mentors. His eye-opening inspirational story proves that there is no such thing as a dream too big, which became the title of his new book. So join us as we rewind to the beginning for one of the most inspirational stories you'll ever hear with Kylan Moore on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 